So I want to try to see if we can get to a couple people who have kind of cases they like some feedback on. One is Dean. In a case a couple weeks ago where a lady had a left mastectomy and she had two five millimeter primaries within the left breast, both of which were ERPR negative, three plus HER2 positive by IHC, and amplification of fish, and she was lymph node negative. So T1B tumor. What were the size of the two lesions? Five millimeters each. So, Sandy, is age? that five millimeters 60. or is that one centimeter? Well, you're not supposed to add them up, they right. say. But, and they so were like a centimeter apart. They weren't, yeah. they weren't, it wasn't they like were, a dumbbell-shaped tumor. They were there was a beautiful little study from New South, was it NSW in Australia, is that New South Wales? I think that's what it is, where they looked at the chance that you would find lymph node involvement correlated to the size added up of individual primaries in patients with multiple primaries in the breast. And I was taught what Sandy just said, and, and we generally practice the way that you don't add them. But for the risk of lymph node mets, a simple numerical addition of the diameters correlated with risk. So that's made me a little less willing to not add them up because you would assume, therefore, that there'd be a linear relationship with distant mets also. So certainly having two 5-millimeter tumors can't be as low risk as having one. How much more than five millimeters the two gives you, I don't know. But maybe it is a full centimeter after all. I don't know. What's the bottom line, though, Sandy, in terms of generally how you approach this how issue? How you would treat this patient. She would actually be eligible for the Beth trial. So if you felt compelled to put her on that or you had that available, she could go on it. I probably, how old did you say she was? She's like 60. The other thing is her sister had a mantle cell lymphoma about six years ago, went through aggressive chemotherapy, had a bad time, and she, this patient is not looking to get chemotherapy if she doesn't have to. Well, I don't, I mean, there's yeah. minimal data in this situation. Even if she had one five millimeter or an eight millimeter, there really aren't many patients that were treated on any of the randomized studies. The only one that would have included these patients would have been the 006 study, but they had probably only 50 or so patients that were under a centimeter, and you can't make any definitive conclusions on that. But if she doesn't want chemotherapy, I mean, I would probably say that's okay, though. If she was agreeable, I would recommend it, most likely would be my recommendation, but I wouldn't beat her over the head with it if she said, I just really don't want it, because mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of data She said, I really do want trastuzumab. I mean, I would use TCH. I mean, I know that there's the Dana-Farber study is using Taxol Herceptin alone. And it's Eric, weekly Taxol for 12 weeks. We have, with we Herceptin, have but it's not a randomized study. You don't know if just Paclitaxel alone is going to be beneficial. We don't have data on that. So I'm talking I, about trastuzumab alone with no chemo. No, I wouldn't recommend that. I would either, I'd give her my best recommendation based on data, which would be TCH. Cliff? And we would enroll her on this Taxol trial. It goes back to what we talked about before. And Cindy's exactly right. It's not randomized. But really one of the goals is to take these patients with low-risk cancer. And if when all said and done, their risk of recurrence ends up being trivial, we will at least know that they don't need more than that. And is there, a, in a more simple situation where you have one lesion, mm-hmm. is there a tumor size where you just sort of bail out and say no? I mean no therapy? Yeah, no trastuzumab, no chemo. Well, if the patient like you're describing, didn't want chemo, obviously. Typically, below a centimeter, we're recommending participation in this trial. And off-study, we struggle with each case. Five millimeters is pretty much the place where we typically don't even try. But that's arbitrary. 
I know, and that's kind of when you ask investigators, the five millimeter point always comes up. But yeah, but we made it up. I don't think we should be proud of that. <laughs> anything new in terms of what the prognosis of these patients is? You know, there have been a few reports. Or it's, actually, it seems like there ought to be a lot more data out there, but what do we know right now about the prognosis of these patients? Well, I think there was MD Anderson data right. that was presented at right. San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it about a 23% recurrence mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. tumors less than a centimeter? So it's not insignificant. I had a patient almost exactly like this, except it was three and seven millimeters. So I know your agony and struggle with this, and I ended up recommending TCH4. Yes. I don't think the MD Anderson divided up the T1As and the T1Bs in that study. So we don't know. Like a five millimeter, it's hard to know. But it was still, I mean, they're still pretty small tumors in general, high recurrence rate. Just to speak to growth factors with TCH, and now with the guidelines not to use EPO, what are you seeing? I'm seeing a lot of anemia. I do use growth factors, and as you probably you may or may not realize that in 06, it was not mandated to use growth factors because a lot of different countries don't have it available. And it's really kind of amazing to me that they didn't have more neutropenic fever in there, but I absolutely use growth factors. I haven't been seeing a lot of anemia yet, and I personally haven't treated hundreds of patients with it, and the data is just coming in from Beth, so I can't give you an answer for that. What's the stipulation in terms of growth factors in Beth? You can use them if you want, but you don't have to. But the guidelines are no longer to use EPO in a curative setting. So, I mean, I'm seeing uh, this week hemoglobin 8.5. She started out at 13. She's on her fifth cycle. It's like, well, hang in there. (laughs) But, I mean, you just... I mean, what do you do? Well, I guess if she drops less than, you know, 8, 7, somewhere around that. She's in her 50s. I mean, she can handle it, but she's just going to be miserable. But at some point, you're going to transfuse them. And how can that be? I'm just really struggling with this data because, you know, as they look at the adjuvant setting, at least my understanding in that retrospective, that wasn't the group that was having the increased deaths. It was, you know, the head necks. It was the advanced setting. It was, you know, a different group of people that were having increased risk of disease recurrence and death on EPO. So. The data with EPO is fascinating. The first data was from uh, Brian Leyland Jones and. What really happened with that is that the broad cancer trial suggested that in a subset of patients with metastatic breast cancer that keeping their hemoglobins up was associated with a survival advantage. And a prospective randomized trial was launched, and there was an increased death rate in a short time window, about eight weeks into the study for people who got EPO. Again, we're talking about biostats all day. It wasn't a prospectively planned analysis. The study was three-quarters done, and one of the European countries opening the study said, gee, you have all these patients on the trial. Why don't you tell us whether it's safe or not at this point? So they did an ad hoc look at a random time in a study that hadn't been planned or set up for this, and they saw 15 versus 43 deaths out of 800 patients, something like that, in this short time window. What's weird about it, and it remains unexplained to this day, is that over the lifespan of the study, month by month, there was no difference in event rates. There was a difference in event rates in a very narrow window, a spike in the hazard that came back down. It's all fascinating. And that was it for the breast cancer data, as you point out. So it's been extrapolated. But I don't know if we know as much about it as all the warnings would suggest. I just have a question. You know, the CALGB data, when they looked at the AC plus or minus taxol, and they did the retrospective analysis and that was published in the New England Journal a few years ago, and that if you're strongly ER positive or two negative, there was no additive benefit to taxol. 
that study had no recommendation in it about what to do with that data. It was just, you know, this is what we saw. This is Dan Hayes' data. Yeah. And, and this is hypothesis generating. And as a co-author, I get myself in a lot of trouble on this particular study. I was it, like, now you got his blood pressure up. I know it. That's the right question. <laughs> no, what do because we do? it doesn't have anything to do with practice. And to our, um, what's the right way to put this? Other investigators who have prospectively planned central analysis for ER and looked at the taxane benefit, both with paclitaxel and docetaxel, have not confirmed what we see retrospectively. We relied on local laboratory testing faxed in as a yes-no question, and the HER2 testing was repeated in this experiment. So I think you can only make too much of this data, and you should not be using it for practice. And I totally, totally agree with that. We looked at B28 and haven't actually haven't published it, and we mm. couldn't confirm it. Right. And recently, these GICAM investigators did a, about a 1,200-patient trial of FEC or FEC weekly paclitaxel, and they prospectively planned this. They got about 80 to 90% of the specimens into centralized testing, and they did not see this whatsoever. So it happened that I wrote the JNCI editorial on this, which has aggravated some of my co-authors because I said this is the point about retrospectively looking at data versus prospectively planning it, and you do get different results for good reasons.